about all the things that have mistakes that have been made in 2014 are about to be over. Does it matter what's happened before, but 2015 now lies before us, filled with potential and possibilities. All of the things that could be in 2015 fill me with excitement and convince me that they should be. And to make the most of all the potential possibilities of 2015 means I'll have to be very intentional about making changes uh, that I want to make. Can you turn that down a little bit? I've got in my mind a place that I want my life to be at the end of 2015, and I'm convinced that these things are going to happen. But none of these things are going to happen by accident. It'll only happen as I determine to make the necessary changes. Now, while you may not be as excited about the New Year as I am, I feel pretty confident in saying that most of us want something to be different in 2015. Right, You may not do resolutions or goals, but you feel there's something you'd like to change by the end of the year. And even if you hadn't thought long and hard about it, there's almost certainly something you want to be different next year than what was going on this year. And I was thinking about this as I was driving home yesterday. And I thought about the number one thing that I want to do in 2015 is make sure that my relationship with Jesus is, is the priority in my life. I found that it is so very easy to let that slip. It is so very easy to get caught up in the busyness of life and other things that are going on that, that I forget to make the my relationship with Jesus the number one priority in my life. And I hope that is what you want for your life this year as well. I hope that is your goal also. And in fact, really the main thing today, the main point of the message today is that, right? Is that I, I'll, in 2015, I'll make my relationship with Jesus the priority in my life. Now that's easy enough to say, but it's a little more difficult to do. How do we go about doing this? Right? It's, obviously it has to be more than just saying, well Jesus is number one in my life. Right? Any sort of commitment we make in life is seen in the actions that we take. Right? And you can do this with, with anything you're going to do or anything you're going to be in life. It's one thing to say you want it to happen. But there are actions you have to take that show your commitment to this. So what actions can we take in 2015 so that we can be sure that our relationship with Jesus is number one in our lives? And there may be any number of things we can do. But as I was thinking about on the way home yesterday, there were four specific actions that came to my mind. Number one is to make spiritual growth a priority. Right? To make spiritual growth a priority. One of the things that the Bible teaches us is that it's God's will for our life to be like Jesus. That there is more to salvation than just believing in Jesus and being, and being saved. That there is something that happens in this life for us and in us and through us to make us different. Romans 8.28 says that it is God's plan that we would all be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, if you read about who Jesus is and what Jesus did and the way Jesus lived... That requires a lot of changes, right? Because none of us on our own are naturally very much like Jesus. And so there are all kinds of things that have to be different in our lives, all kinds of changes that we have to make. But the thing about the changes is that we have to, well, we have to put forth effort to make them happen. Right, spiritual growth, these sort of changes, they don't happen accidentally and they don't happen automatically. One of the, I think the the great myths about spiritual growth that people often have is is that spiritual growth is automatic. And the idea with this is, well, I've been saved for X amount of years, therefore I am naturally, I'm just automatically spiritually mature. I have grown in the grace and the knowledge of my Lord Jesus Christ because I've been a Christian. And while that ideally should be the case, realistically it's not. 
Right? And think about it in terms of emotional growth. Right? Really, ideally, somebody that's 22, 23, or 24, they should be emotionally mature. But realistically, that's not always the case. I'm reminded of a guy I served in the army with. He came in and he had been to college a little bit before he went through basic training. And when he arrived at our basic training, or at our, in our unit in 101st, he had this idea that he had it all squared away and that he knew what needed to be done. So we were doing our first live fire exercise and we were running down the range. And to go down the range, it requires you to do a whole lot of stand up and run, flop down really quick, low crawl, high crawl, three to five second rush. It is difficult, it is painful to do all of that. And this guy went along for a little bit and as we were hollering at him to catch up because he was falling behind, he jumped up and he grabbed his rifle and he threw it on the ground and he said, I quit. Like he was in the Girl Scouts or something. I quit. Right? He was 22 years old. He should have known. That you, the army's like the Roach Motel. You can get in, but you can't get out. Right? There was no quitting. But because it was hard, and because it wasn't going the way he wanted it to go, and because we were daring to yell at him and tell him to keep up with the rest of us, he was just going to take his toys and go home. He was emotionally immature when he should have been emotionally mature. That happens in our spiritual lives as well. Right? We should naturally grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that doesn't always happen. Instead, what often happens is people go along and they never really progress beyond where they were on the day that they were saved. Now, that doesn't mean that they live sinful, wicked lives. Some might, but most don't. That doesn't mean that they never darken the door of a church. Some, some might, but most don't. Most will be semi-regular to church. They will live good, basic, moral lives. But there are other things that are noticeable in what, cause, in what is evidence of their spiritual immaturity. And what I think of is of trouble and strife in churches. You look at churches that split. And very rarely do churches split over significant issues. Very rarely do churches split over who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Very rarely do churches split over the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. Churches usually split over what color the pews ought to be. Right? Churches split over whether you ought to sing from a hymnal or from songs upon the wall. Churches split over not whether the pastor should wear a tie. Churches split over the stupidest things that there could possibly be. And if you were to follow... That split and trace the issues right down to the core. What you would find in every instance, I'm convinced, is a someone who should have been a mature believer, has been saved long enough to have matured, but is not. And they're mad because they're not getting their way. It boils down to spiritual immaturity, hindering and holding back the church, causing trouble and keeping it from accomplishing the mission of making disciples of all nations. So what do we do? If we want to make spiritual growth, a much, uh, spiritual growth a priority. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. It's page 938 if you have a pew Bible. And look at, start at verse 2. Peter writes and he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you. The knowledge of God our Savior, of God and of Jesus our Lord. As His divine power has given us 
all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who has called us to glory and virtue. Now, let me just stop there. Notice that through our relationship with Jesus, our knowledge of him, our, our personal relationship with him, we have everything we need to live a godly life. Right? Through the promises he has given us, through the spirit that lives within us, Every person who has genuinely been born again and believes in Jesus Christ has everything they need to live a godly life. And he says, by which has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Right? So we have great promises. Right? And these promises tell us the Spirit lives within us. That if we walk in the Spirit, we will not be, we will not follow the works of the flesh. That we can overcome, we can live victorious, we can do what needs to be done. All of these types of promises, they are given to us and they help us to be what God wants us to be. But notice what he goes on to say in verse 5. But for this very reason, right, because we have everything we need to live a godly life. Because we have been given these great and precious promises. Give all diligence to add to your faith. Now, what a, what a great phrase. Giving all diligence. Right, that is not a, a phrase that says this automatically happens. Right, that is a phrase that says it takes a lot of effort. Make every effort, some translations say. Because we have these promises, because we can overcome, because we can live a godly life and be like Jesus, make every effort to add to your faith. Faith is the foundation. It's the beginning. But once we have faith in Jesus, we are then to add to that faith. Add to your faith Virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Everything in this passage right, says, put forth lots of effort. Right, that we have to try to grow spiritually. Once we have faith in Jesus, we need to add to that faith. And we need to build on that and keep going and keep going and keep going until we are like Jesus. Let me ask you, are you making every effort to grow spiritually? Are you adding to your faith? Now faith, again, that's the foundation. It all starts there. But are you adding to that? Right? The virtue, the knowledge, the godliness, the brotherly love, all of these things. And if you're not, you need to be. This year, determine that one way that you will show that Jesus, your relationship with Jesus is the priority in your life is that you will make, give all diligence to add to your faith. Secondly, find and use my spiritual gifts. Every believer is saved to serve. Right, if we were to look at Ephesians 2, first 10 verses. 
we would find Paul talking about what we were before we came to know Jesus Christ. We would find Paul saying that by the grace and the mercy of God we have been saved and we have been changed. But then it ends in chapter in verse 10 by saying that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the good things that He planned for us to do. See, each and every one of us, we were saved to serve. We were saved to serve Jesus and to do something for Him. Let me show you this in Scripture. Flip over to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10. Verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 10. First Peter 4 and 10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability with which God supplies. That in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, there's a lot of things that should stand out. One is that every believer has been given a spiritual gift. Every believer has been given at least one spiritual gift. There are diversities of gifts. There are all kinds of spiritual gifts. But if you have believed in Jesus Christ, you have been given at least one. Uh, a second thing that should stand out is that we are to use those gifts, right? He says, if, if anyone ministers, let him do it, right? So, and the idea is ministry is one of the gifts. So if you have this gift, use it. Take what God has given you and use it. And he says that do it with the ability with which God supplies. And I love that. God gives us the power to do what He has called us and He has equipped us to do. That the Holy Spirit will always enable us to use the gifts that God has given us. So God gives us the power and in all things that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Right? God is glorified when we use our spiritual gifts. When we take that gift that God has given us and we begin to use it. God is always honored. God is always glorified. Right? You think about like what Jesus said in Matthew, let your light so shine before men, they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What are the good works that glorify our Father? Well, there's a lot, but one of those is using our spiritual gifts. When we do what God has called us to do, God is always glorified. Now, since we all have spiritual gifts, if we're believers, and we're all supposed to use those spiritual gifts, the question arises, well, what is my spiritual gift? How can I find my spiritual gift? And I think there are a lot of ways. One is what's called a, a spiritual gift inventory test. And I have some up here that I'll put out after the service if you want to take one. And they're not a bad deal. You answer a series of questions, and based off the way you answer them, it tells you the, the probability and the likelihood of what your spiritual gift may be. And it's not a bad way to start, but I don't know that it's 100% reliable. I'm always reminded of Rick Warren. Uh, Rick Warren said when he took a spiritual gift test, when he decided he wanted to serve the Lord long before he answered the call to preach, and when it came up, his gift was a martyr. His spiritual gift was that of a martyr. He said, great, a spiritual gift I get to use once. Um, he, was, he said things like teaching and writing, those things never came up. It just happened as he began to do it. And so he came up with a way to find out how we're to minister to the Lord, how we're to serve God. And it's called shape. And if you've read The Purpose Driven Life, uh, I think two chapters are devoted to it. I'll kind of summarize it real quick. And, and to find your shape, here's what you look at. First, your spiritual gifts. Right? What are things that God has gifted you to do? What are things that you know 
that God wants you to do. Secondly, heart. What are you passionate about? Right? I mean, never underestimate your own personal passion to be able to find what God wants you to do. Right? If God has shaped us and if God has created us, then there is a, a likelihood that what we're passionate about is a way that God wants us to serve Him. Right? Are, we, are we passionate about helping the homeless? That's certainly a way that God can use us to serve Him. Are we passionate about evangelism? Are we passionate about helping people to understand who Jesus is? I mean, what are you passionate about? Because what you're passionate about is certainly something God can use to help you serve Him. What are your abilities? Not some people are just naturally good at things. Are you just naturally a good teacher? Are you just naturally a good singer? Can you naturally play instruments? Right? Are you just good with people? Right? What, what are your natural abilities? Things that you, you just look at and you say, you know what, not in an arrogant way, but I know I'm good at these things. If God has created us, then certainly God can use our abilities to, so that we can serve Him. What's your personality? Right? I mean, what is God, again, our, our personal wiring? Matters. My dad, my dad is very outgoing guy. Uh, he has no embarrassment. He has no fear of anything. He can walk up to anyone on the street and just begin to share the gospel. And if they don't like it, it doesn't hurt his feelings. It doesn't make him cry. He went to, when he moved back to the hometown that we grew up in. He went to visit one of his high school friends, and he was visiting a little bit. And he said, "You know, Joe, I can't remember what the guy's name was. I want to talk to you about Jesus." The guy said, Jim, you can come visit me anytime you want to, but two things I don't ever want you to talk to me about again. Don't talk to me about politics. Don't talk to me about religion. That's it. Okay. Still visits the guy. Prays for opportunities to get to open up, and I believe he will. But his personality is such. Now me, that might have made me cry. You're so mean to me. Right? I mean, but dad, the stuff like that doesn't bother him. Right? So what is your natural personality? Are you just naturally a friendly person? Right. Scott, Scott's just naturally a friendly person. He's cheerful and outgoing. Right? Uh, we find our, our natural personality and God can use that to help us. Right? There is, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, it doesn't matter. There is no right personality. It's just the way that God made you. And God can use that to help others. And then there's your experiences. Right? What things have you experienced in your life? And Rick Warren, he divides it up into five. All right, your educational experiences. What kind of things were you good at in school? What have you had in college or in school that you've learned that you could use that to help others with? You could serve God by serving others. Your vocational experiences. Right, what, what have you done in your jobs that you could use that to help others and to influence them for Christ? What about spiritual experiences? What has happened in your relationship with Jesus? What are some things that He has helped you through, He has gotten you over, and He has been with you in? Right? That can definitely help others. Your ministry experiences. How have you served Jesus in the past? What have you done in the past to serve God by serving others? And then painful experiences. Right? Everybody goes through painful experiences. Everybody goes through hardships and trials in their life. How, did, how was God with you in that? What were the doubts you faced? What were the, the fears you wrestled with? How did you come out on the other side still believing in God when everything fell apart on you? Trust me, that can help others who are also going through their painful experiences. So each one of us, we, 
we've been given a spiritual gift and we are to use it for the glory of God. And you say, well, I, I know what my spiritual gift is and I'm already doing it. So how does this apply to me? I like what Paul said to Peter. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And I love that phrase, flame, fan into flame the gift of God. You know what? It's easy to take our, our ministries and our spiritual gifts for granted and not begin to put forth the effort to, to use them properly. You know, it's easy that when Sunday school, we have, I use a Sunday school book. It would be easy to not study my Sunday school lesson. Right, Just kind of wing it at the last minute. It would be easy to wing my sermons. Right, You guys don't have any idea what's in my notes. I could be making all this up. There could be blank pages I laid down on the, on, up there. You don't know. I could have downloaded this from Rick Warren. You don't have any idea. Right? It's easy to go through the motions. It can be easy to do that. So what do we need to do? We need to find out if we know what our spiritual gifts are. We need to do what we can to fan that into flame so that we stay excited about it. So that we continue to do our very, very best. That's what we have to do if you already know your spiritual gifts and are using it. Fan it into flames. Listen, one of the greatest things ever is finding what God has shaped you to do. Right? It, it is just figuring it out and doing it. And the spiritual gift inventory, it's not a bad thing. It, it's pretty good. It can help you along the way. But I'm going to be honest with you. I think the greatest way to figure out what God has shaped you to do is just start doing something. Because when you start, you're going to figure out pretty quick whether or not that's what you're supposed to be doing. I was, I've told before, I was never outgoing. Speaking in public was not something I liked to do. And when I began to think God might be calling me to preach, I was trying to find all this confirmation. I'd talk to this preacher and I'd talk to this deacon and I'd do this and, I'd, and all these people. And finally one of my deacons said, he said, our pastor's gone. Why don't you preach next Wednesday night? He said, five minutes into the message, you'll know whether or not that's what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> Sink or swim. I mean, there was truth. right? Because once I started, I knew. And I knew that's what I was supposed to be doing. Right? Just do something. Right? There are no penalties for doing the wrong thing. Try something. And as you start, you'll begin to figure out where you fit, what your shape is, and what you're supposed to be doing. And listen, there is not much that demonstrates that Jesus Christ and your relationship with Him is the priority in your life, like finding and using your spiritual gifts for His glory. Thirdly, tell others about Jesus. And we say, Jesus is the, the most important thing. That we need Jesus more than we need anything. That he is the best thing ever. If he is the best thing ever, then we ought to tell others about him. We ought to do what we can to help others come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now there's a, a saying. It's real popular. Like if you put it on Facebook, you'll get all kinds of likes. And what it says is this. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Oh, that sounds great. Right? I let my life be a witness from Jesus. Right? People just see Christ and how I live and, and who I am and the priorities I make. Let me say, there's truth in that. Right? I mean, the life we live, it better back up the words we say or our witness won't mean anything. Right? Certainly, certainly our life needs to be consistent with our words. 
However, at some point, there has to be words. I read one guy talking about that saying, and he said, saying, preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. It's like saying, give me your phone number and use digits if necessary. Words are necessary. So people can see in our lives something is different. And they can see that we have different priorities, and we respond differently, and we act differently. But they don't know what that difference is. right? There's no neon light that says Jesus flashing over our heads that they can read. Instead, at best, what it'll do is it'll cause them to come up to us and say, Why do you act like you act? Guess what we have to have then? Words. At that point, we have to tell them about Jesus. And the Bible says this. Look at what Paul said. He said, Whoever calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is a promise. What a great promise. Everyone who calls on Jesus will be saved by Jesus. But look at what he goes on to say. He asks these rhetorical questions. Right? How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Right? So these rhetorical questions are kind of a way of saying they can't. Right? So how can someone, everybody who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they going to call on Jesus if they don't believe in Jesus? Well, they won't. That doesn't make sense, right? If they don't believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, if they don't believe that He died on the cross for their sins and rose again, no one will just call on Him. So they won't. But, He goes on. And how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how are they going to believe in Jesus if they've never heard about Jesus? And what we want to say is, well, this is Oklahoma. And everybody knows about Jesus. Man, that's a mistake. Maybe 50 years ago, everybody knew about Jesus. But I can promise you, every one of us, we know someone that has never heard a clear presentation of who Jesus is and why he's important. They do not know. And if they never hear about him, they'll never believe in him. And if they never believe in him, they'll never call on him. And if they never call on him, they'll never be saved by him. And then how will they hear about him unless someone tells them? How are they going to hear unless someone tells them? They won't. I mean, we live in a day in which people can live in Oklahoma. And they can live and they can die. And they can never darken the door of a church outside of a funeral or a wedding. They can live and they can die and they can never hear about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And if, and if you won't tell those in your circle of influence, who's going to? If I won't tell those in my circle of influence, who's going to? Very likely nobody will. And if nobody tells them, they'll never hear. And if they never hear, they'll never believe. If they never believe, they'll never call on him. If they never call on him, they'll never be saved. At some point, we have to use our words. Now, we fear that. That's what we're afraid of because we're afraid they'll ask questions we can't answer. They'll be argumentative. Right? And I think all of that's a likelihood. I'd love to tell you that'll never happen. It might. Right? There are tough questions out there people can ask. There are some people who are hostile to it. And when you begin, they're going to get angry about it. Here's the thing. First, not knowing the answer is not the worst thing in the world. Nobody's going to go to hell because you didn't have the right answer. 
Right? People ask you a question, you don't know the answer, you know what you say? I don't know. But I will find out and I will get back to you next week. And then you go and you look up and you find the answer. Because nobody is thinking of questions today that have never been brought up before. Right? Those who are hostile to Christianity and speaking out against it and bringing up questions about the inspiration, the authority of Scripture, the uniqueness of Christ, they are not unique questions. They are not just now coming into existence. They have had these questions for hundreds of years. And there have been answers to these questions for hundreds of years. And you can find them. Right? And if they want to argue about it, here's what you say. Oh, never mind. <laughs> and walk away. Right? Because even if you argue with them, I don't think you ever argue anyone into the kingdom of God. Right? If they just want to argue, let it go, move on down the road. But at some point you have to talk to them. And I think my favorite story in the Gospels about somebody who, who told others about Jesus was the man that was possessed with legions of demons. Remember the story? He's possessed with legions of demons. He lives in the uh, cemetery, cuts himself, and he's naked. Jesus comes along, casts the demons out. People come, and they find him in his right mind and fully clothed. He wants to go with Jesus when he leaves, and Jesus says, no. You go back to your family and friends, and you tell them what good things God has done for you. That's all he was told to do. He wasn't told to go argue the finer points of the law. He wasn't told to go and, and debate them in public forum. Go tell them what God has done for you. Right? Has God done something for you? Has he, has he answered a prayer? Can you see a change He has made in your life? Do you know for sure that you're saved? Can you explain why His death on the cross was important and what someone has to do to be saved? And you have everything you need to tell someone about Jesus Christ. There is very little that says Jesus is number one in my life. Like telling others that Jesus is number one in your life. And then finally, commit yourself to Jesus' church. One of the things that we see in our day is that there is a very, very real, we have become an individualistic culture. And in this culture of individuality, we've developed a kind of a rugged individualism that says, I, I don't need anybody, just me. You see this in our culture with how we like, you know, people who brought themselves up from their bootstraps, so to speak. And we love that sort of stuff. And we have that mindset. But then we get saved and we carry that mindset with us. And we say, I don't need the church. I just need me and Jesus. Right? Just me and Jesus, we've got our own thing. And as long as I love Jesus, I, I don't need the church. I, I don't need that. I don't need them. I just, I have Jesus. And that's all there is. And that, that mindset... It's completely foreign to Scripture. I mean, if you were to go through the book of Acts, it would be a great thing to do. And you find every instance of people being saved. They preach a message and people being saved. And then mark down what did the people do once they were saved. Without fail, they were saved and they joined themselves to the believers. They were saved and they joined with the church. In every single instance. Right? That there is... No picture in the New Testament of a believer that is not a part of a church. Every single believer joined a church, was active in the church, and faithful to the church. And the Bible, the whole New Testament, declares to us the importance 
of the church of Jesus Christ. Right? Who was the majority of the New Testament written to? Churches. Right? And the very few books that we have that were written to people, like Timothy and Titus, right? they were pastors of churches. And they were written to teach those people how to live as a church of Jesus Christ. Right? The New Testament was written to churches, not to rugged individuals. It wasn't written to teach us how to live as rugged individuals with just us and Jesus. It was given to show us how to live together. That's why it continually says love one another, forgive one another, bear with one another. I can't do that with just me and Jesus. We need each other and we always will. It was intended to be that way. We can even look at what Jesus, think, what Jesus feels about the church. Look at this. Jesus started the church. Right? It, was, it was his idea. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus loves the church. Jesus works to make a glorious church. And Jesus used his blood to purchase the church. And there's more. That's just a few quick ones. Let me ask you. Is the church a priority to Jesus? Absolutely. Is Jesus committed to the church? Absolutely. So you expect his people would also be committed to his church. You better believe he does. He absolutely expects that all those who call him Savior and Lord would be a part of his church and be committed to his church. So what does it look like to be committed to the church? I think there are maybe four things. Be baptized. If you haven't been baptized, that's something you need to do. The Bible teaches that every person who has believed in Jesus Christ is meant to be baptized by immersion. Baptism in the Bible was a way of not only identifying with Jesus, but identifying with his church. When they were baptized, they were saying, we are forsaking what we were, and we're becoming something different, and we're joining ourselves with these people. Right? It is a way of declaring to the world, Jesus is my Lord. And I am going to join with his church to accomplish his mission in the world. Join the church. Right? I mean, one of the ways to show our commitment to the church is to move from being a, an attender to a member. Right? To take ownership and say, this is my church. Right? This is where I am going to gather with people, worship my God, use my gifts, and further his kingdom. And, and I'm not necessarily even saying join this church. Right? This may not be the church you want to join, but join a church. Right? There are a lot of good churches in our community. Now, none of them are perfect. Right? And if you're waiting to find a perfect church to join, you'll never join a church. Right? Because you'll find things wrong here. And then you'll leave and go to somewhere else and you'll find things wrong there. And then you'll leave there and go somewhere else and you'll find something wrong there. And then you'll just bounce around. All of your life, at some point, you just have to say, I'm going to commit to a church, make this my home, worship and serve God with these people, and seek to advance His kingdom there. Faithfully attend. Your presence says a lot about what you're committed to. Where you are says a lot about what you're committed to. Faithfully attend. And then, 
financially support. You're thinking, oh, I knew he's going to get around to money at some point. Do you know the Bible talks a lot about money? A lot. And if you were to take all that the Bible said, and you were to boil it down to one principle, here's what the principle would be. Where I spend my money shows what my priority is. I mean, that's the the overarching principle of money in Scripture. The way I spend my money, it shows what my priority is. Giving is an act of worship. It's an act of commitment. And when we give to Jesus' church, we are worshiping Him and we are demonstrating, I am committed to Jesus. And there is not much that's going to show that Jesus is number one in our lives like being committed to the organization that He died to start. That He purchased with His blood. That He loves, works in, and works through. That is a huge part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And when we think about these actions to take, one of the things that should stand out to us is that these things require effort. But none of these things are going to happen accidentally. I'm not going to accidentally make spiritual growth a priority. I'm going to have to be intentional and put forth effort to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to accidentally find and use my spiritual gift or fan it into flames. I'm going to have to put forth effort to do that. I'm not going to accidentally tell someone about Jesus. I'm going to have to intentionally do that. I'm not going to accidentally be committed to church. I'm going to have to intentionally do that. All of this takes effort on our parts. But if we put forth the effort and we do what God has said to do, I mean, God will make a difference in our lives. What would be different in all of our lives at the end of 2015 if starting today I said, I am going to make, give all diligence to add to my faith and I worked all year long to add to my faith. What kind of difference would it make if I said I am going to find and use my spiritual gift no matter what? I'm going to find a way to serve, to minister, and to do that. What difference would it make in our lives and in the lives of those around us? What difference would it make if we made a commitment? We're going to tell people about Jesus. And we're going to give them the opportunity to hear about Him, to believe in Him, to call on Him, and be saved by Him. But all these things would make a huge difference in our lives and the lives of the world around us. Let's demonstrate that Jesus and our relationship with Him is the number one thing in our lives this year. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.